listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So the names of the minor prophets, there's 12 of them. They're kind of up and down in popularity today. Who's had a friend named Amos? Just me. Hey, I, I didn't even grow up a Christian, guys. Like, hey, I know you got at least one friend, Amos. What about a Malachi? More Malachi's, thank you. And everyone knows a Jonah from high school. Put them up. Everyone knows at least one Jonah. In our congregation, we got a Daniel, we got a Micah, we got two Joels. Don't let Andy Wood fool you. Right there, also a Joel. But raise your hand if you've ever met a Nahum. There's a reason. One, his name does not translate as pretty as Joel does. Kind of rolls off the tongue. Almost named my son Joel. And B, Nahum is a three-chapter book about God's wrath. That is a deterrent to many to naming their child. However, the word Nahum actually means comfort or comforter in Hebrew. There's actually a beautiful message amongst this powerful wrath. And citizens, if you rock with us for the long term, and I hope you will, we are on a 10-year mission to preach every single book of the Bible in an expository way, which means we let the Bible text teach us. And we do it according to genre. Sometimes we're telling the story of the whole passage or the history. Sometimes it's poetry. Sometimes it's wisdom. Sometimes it's gospel. Sometimes it's a letter from Paul or Peter or James or things like this. And today, it's a prophecy. It's talking about future events, at least future to the people writing and listening to it. And it's written as a proclamation of doom in chapter one, and then war poetry in chapter two and three. Remember, there's no YouTube, there's no movies, there's no memes. So when you wrote, you had to make word pictures to both tell people the doom was coming and then show them, this is what it will feel like, Nineveh, when the Lord brings doom upon you. And it is extremely graphic language. And as we're moving through these 12 minor prophets, we do them kind of in between our larger series here at Citizens as a moment to kind of reset and refresh before we get into the next big block of teaching. Next week, we will start five weeks in a series called Assembling the Church, where we focus on essentials like baptism, what it means, why, why it matters to us, communion, what it is, how it works, why it matters to us, and other big pieces of the church. But today with Nahum, it's a book from a distant time in a distant land. And it would be too easy for these rare feeling books of the Old Testament just to write them off. That would be the easy thing to do. Because as long as we believe the Bible is mostly about us and our life, we can write these books off. But when we realize that the Bible is a book about God, and that as a Christian, your life is about God, then everything in the Bible suddenly becomes interesting and instructive for your life. And that's why Nahum matters as Christian scripture to all who follow Jesus. Now, Nahum is a book written somewhere in 660 to 630 BC. That's before Christ. Look at this amazing timeline up here. Everyone, I know, I know. There, there's one creative person. Actually, there's many here at Citizens, but give it up for Kate Tedditton in the back. 
It's written somewhere in here. We know this because it talks about this great city, Thebes, that was never going to fall in Egypt. Well, it falls in 663. So it talks about that. So we know it had to be written after that. And then it's written before Assyria starts falling from power in 630. However, key thing to note, we preached this book a long time ago, but this is a prophecy against Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. We actually had a prophet go to Nineveh about 100 years earlier, and his message was simple. Repent, for the city will be destroyed. In that time, the Ninevites, the people who lived there, they listened. They barely knew who this God of the Jews was, but they're like, I don't know. We're repenting. And in mass, a whole generation of these Assyrian leaders and people all repent. However, when we read this book, we realize their repentance was short-lived. That in as little as, say, 40 years, a generation, the Assyrians would be led by a ruthless group of kings to start destroying and conquering the areas all around them. And they would take the northern kingdom, the top 10 tribes of Israel, into captivity and destroy their life and land in 722. Now, I need to tell you something about the Assyrians. Life was brutal then, very brutal. And on top of the list were the Assyrians and their level of brutality. They were down to pillage, assault, murder, burn, do whatever's necessary to both dominate every people and culture around them and strike enough fear in their hearts that they would not rebel. And then their devious plan was this. They would take tons of the people and then switch them around all over the empire so that they couldn't foment a rebellion. So there'd be new people moving into new lands and moving to other lands, and it would make the people confused but keep them all subjugated to the Assyrian Empire, working and giving tribute to them. These were ruthless people to conquer, and they destroyed everything in their path. So we see Assyria goes back to their gods, goes back to their ruthless ways, and Nahum drops the prophecy right here at the height of Assyrian power. And lo and behold, Written somewhere in here, about 40, 50 years later, it becomes completely true. As Assyria falls completely to the Babylonians, never to be really rebuilt as Nineveh ever again. And listen to some of these kings' names. As I was doing research, I had to hit on some of these names. Because they sound like the evilest of evil villains of all time. You ready? Throw that picture of, a, of, of one first. They like to depict themselves conquering lions, that they were like the lion tamers of the world. And they like to keep the title king of the universe. That's a bold flex to call yourself king of the universe, the one who mangles lions and compared themselves to being the lion king before Disney made it wonderful. And here's their names. Things like Tigloth Pilzer III, Shalamanziar the Fifth. Sargon II. If you meet a guy named Sargon, it is time to roll. Doesn't matter how big he is or how big you are, it's time to roll. Me and Elena were talking about this. We have a lot of babies being born here. If you name your child Sargon, the destroyer Smith, we will buy you whatever cool baby stroller you want. 
It's on the house. It's on us. Can you imagine baby dedication? Oh, look at Sargon with the red gleam in his eyes. These guys were the bad guys, the baddest dudes around. How'd they get the throne? They either passed through their family line or old Sargon here led a palace coup where they just killed everybody in the rival house's line. It is intense people. And there are people that in this period from the conquering of the northern kingdom were just dominating, dominating God's people, dominating them in every way. These people lived in fear all the time. If it wasn't one thing, it was the other. Life was not good. And the city of Nineveh was gigantic and historically great. Take a picture of this, or look at this picture. This is actually the Iraqi state modernly rebuilt the walls just to show it off, to show how big the ruins actually were. And these walls were a hundred feet high and then were so wide that three chariots could race each other around the loop of the whole walls. That's huge. That's huge by our standards. There was a moat 50 feet deep as well. And this is what it looks like today. This is the same gate uh, that ISIS used bulldozers for weeks and weeks on ends to destroy. And I bring that up to you to just say evil forever and ever has been trying to erase the past, trying to erase the facts and historical truths of the Bible, and to show you that these things are still pretty connected to us. 2,600 years sounds like forever since Nahum walked around, but in another way, people are still actively trying to destroy the evidence that Nineveh ever exists. And when God dropped this prophecy and fulfilled it, no one ever lived in Nineveh as a city again. They built the city across the river, modern-day Mosul, but Nineveh never rose again after this prophecy. And to fully understand this book as Christians, we must read it inside of God's grander story with Jesus at the very center. See, the resurrected Jesus pulled two of his disciples aside. They're walking on the road. And in Luke 24, Jesus tells them this. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ, me, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Nahum, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we got to understand this historical context and make sense of this prophecy, but we also have to understand it with Jesus at the center or we'll miss what God's saying to us. Look, at, it looks like this, God's story. You think of it as Nahum's story, and the more we see God and Nahum's story, Jesus at the center of it, as a part of God's big story, we can begin to make sense of our own story. See, Nahum has this crazy message, and the guarantee in your life isn't that your life's going to make perfect sense, but that it fits into God's big story too. And your life will make more sense, will be clearer and more beautiful when Jesus is at the center of it too. That's why it's so important to read scripture in light of Jesus, but then also see your life in light of who Jesus is to make sense of all these things. When we see Nahum as a story with Jesus as the center, we also learn to live our lives with Jesus at the center.
And the first thing Nahum shares to this, this people is this mighty city. We need to remember how big and how mighty God is. Look at verse 2 with me. He starts off with who the Lord is. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. A reference to Exodus 34 as God revealed himself. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, those are mountains, they wither. The bloom of Lebanon, that's a fertile seacoast, it withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves before him, and the whole world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, his anger? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken to pieces by him. Nahum wants them to understand, no matter how big or how bad, no matter how much beaten down the Ninevites, the Assyrians have done, they are not as big as God. Even though it feels like it, even though they're feeling the pain of deported people, even though they're living, some of them are reading this letter as exiles in a foreign land, they must remember their God created this earth. And just because a king likes to make uh, pictures of him fighting lions and call himself king of the universe, he's not. God is the king of the universe. God makes the mountains shake. And he's telling us about the power, the great power of God can actually bring Nineveh's doom, even though it feels like that's impossible. God has the power to accomplish whatever he says. That makes God both terrifying and trustworthy. Because we say things and don't have the power to fulfill it. That's called being an untrustworthy or a misleading person. God has never misled anybody. Everything he says he can and will fulfill. God never writes checks that his strong arm will not cash. In verse three says the Lord who by no means will clear the guilty. And this is where God's wrath, even though it makes us uncomfortable, is so important because we need a God of wrath to deal with enemies and avenging of wrongs. You don't want to worship a don't you want to worship a God who is strong and willing to deal with the Hitlers? Willing to deal with the Stalins, the Mussolinis, the Osama bin Ladens, the Maos of history? Willing to deal with the KKK in America? Willing to deal with serial murders, Charles Manson's, Kermit Gosnell's, Jeffrey Epstein's, and all the like? Don't you want a God who is powerful and cares about justice and actually has the power to do something about it? Because we need a God that's that big, that's that just, that's that powerful to be able to deal with our stories, to be able to deal with the violence against us, the abuse against us, the sexual assault against us, the things in our life that we're so deeply troubled that, man, they're going to get away with it. No one gets away with it with God. The God is completely just and wrath is his tool. No one will get away with it. What gives us courage to live our life and be able to tell the stories and not be haunted by them always. But verse seven sets our God apart from the God of Islam. The Lord's good purpose and his great power. Look at verse seven. It's a knockout verse. The Lord is good. 
a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. To repent is to take refuge. The Lord knows all who come to him in their need, who come to them in their evil. All who come to him, he will be a stronghold from his own wrath because he is good. Up until this moment, this passage could have been describing the God of Islam, a God who is other, a God who is infinite, a God who is greater. That is what Allah Akbar even means. It means God is greater. Our God is the greatest. And God is great according to the Muslim religion. God is great according to many religions. But Christianity says that God is not only gloriously great, but perfectly good. And his purposes are good towards you. And he proves this by his son, Jesus Christ. No one makes God die for his people. God chooses to die for his people, making him infinitely good towards you and a refuge for all who repent. Verse seven is a prophecy that the Lord is good and will be good, that the Lord is a refuge and will be a refuge, even from his own just wrath. And this reminds me of Harry Potter. In the second book, a lowly elf named Dobby, he comes to Harry Potter, who's famous, and Dobby shares a problem with Harry. And to Dobby's great surprise, Harry offers him help. And Dobby responds in the third person. Harry Potter asks if he can help Dobby. Dobby has heard of your greatness, sir, but of your goodness, Dobby never knew. If you only know the Lord is great, you do not know him. But when you know the Lord is good and great, that he can save and has the ability to actually do it, you know the Lord Jesus quite truly. Church, your path into knowing the goodness of Christ is to start to revel at God's glorious greatness. Your path also is to follow his glorious greatness into the depths of the love of Christ. They lead into one another as this beautiful, beautiful God. And Nahum has reminded Judah that God created it all, and this is what he will do to Nineveh, the Assyrians, your enemy. The Lord will judge evil. Look with me at verse 12. It says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, talking to about Syria, and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So God had used the Assyrians to discipline his beloved, his Israel. He had used them as a tool of discipline. He says, I've afflicted you through them, but I'm not going to do that anymore. Verse 13, and now I will break his yoke off from, off from you. I will burst your bonds apart. They're not going to rule over you. The Lord has given a commandment about you. So that, now he's speaking directly to Assyria. No more shall your name be per perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you he, being Assyria, is utterly 
cut off. The Lord knows they're the most powerful in the world. The Lord knows about the hurt that they have caused, but the time has come for their judgment and their fall, and their strength will not matter. They're going to dwell in their graves just like their broken false gods that cannot save them. And this is good news. It's literally a gospel of literal life salvation that your enemy is not going to conquer you any longer. It's a peace through judgment coming from God by way of his wrath. Even though they're scared, even though the northern kingdom is gone, even though it's just Judah and Benjamin left, God will be the judge and he will judge this bloodthirsty people. That God has a judgment. And there's two audiences for this piece. First is the explicit audience, that this is a prophecy against and for and towards the Syrians. It's a prophetic warning to them. And at least some people would hear this message. They probably wouldn't listen to it. They probably wouldn't care as they've been conquering these people over and over. Who cares what their God has to say? But God informs them of their defeat. In about 30, 40 years, it will come from the Babylonians. But there's a second audience. It's the implicit audience. It's the people overhearing what God has to say. And that is the Jews or Judah. And it's a potent comfort for them. And it's a comfort in three ways. One, it's a comfort that their enemies are going to die. And we have little to compare this in our timeline here in America. We've not experienced total war on our country's land where our life is at stake every day in that sort of war. So it's a great comfort to know this enemy is not going to win the war. That is a great comfort. Second, that the discipline that Judah and Benjamin have experienced from the Lord through the Assyrians, that God has not forgotten about the evil doings of the Assyrians, that God has judged them by the holiness and he will judge them by his holiness as well, that God will be fair and just in these things. And the third way it comforts them is a warning to not envy these other nations or other people or other kings who do not follow God. Even if they seem so successful, do not envy them. Do not long to be like them. And this is an issue that's bothered God's people throughout the Bible and us today. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked seem to do so well? And we get into this game of comparison. And this is a comfort to them to not do that, that God's wrath will come, but it's a big application for us that why do unbelieving people sometimes seem to be prospering compared to me? I had a close friend um, who was struggling through years of infertility with his wife. They happened to click on the local news, and a tragic story came up of two parents addicted to drugs that had let their infant die through neglect. And it made this man, as him and his wife are struggling with infertility, just start to internally rage of God, you know I'm a righteous man. You know I'm a good man. You know I'm not addicted to drugs. You know I would never let that happen if you gave me a child. Why would you give these people a child and not me and my wife? That suddenly the heaviness of it all, he couldn't see anything else other than the unfairness feeling of comparison. And sometimes comparisons like that manifest just as worldly jealousy. They're not quite so heavy. We're tempted to jealousy and tempting bitterness when it seems like those who lie about their sales at work or lie on their reports, they seem to move up and over us. 
when you're like, man, I'm doing it right. There's jealousy and tempting bitterness to see the attention a person gets through maybe how they dress or act or what they post online. And you're like, man, Lord, I'm trying to live a righteous life. And why don't I get this kind of attention? Maybe it's jealousy and tempting to bitterness on straight up wealth things. That why do these others prosper? These friends from high school or friends from college, they, they prosper and they don't care about God. And I'm over here being a good steward and just doing the best I can and working as hard as I can and working for my family and work for all these things. And what, what, he has like six times as much as I do, Lord. I remember last summer I was at the beach. I was having a blast with my family. And, and I looked behind me and just saw all these houses lining the beach on the water. And they were just these gigantic mansions of, of glass and steel. And they're just so beautiful. At some point, my heart just started to sink as I thought about the relatively meager place we'd rented about a mile away and started to sink further. Of like, oh, wait, what? What's going on here? Why, Lord, I'm a good steward. And suddenly in the comparison game, I'm sitting there spinning out on the beach about stuff that I usually don't care about, but was tempting enough for those thoughts. Why do the wicked prosper? I want to give you a surprising answer for us and a clear one from Nahum to comfort you. Because of God's wrath, it is best not to play judge. It is best not to play God getting jealous and bitter over those who seem to prosper in life, but rather keep your eyes on your own paper. Worrying about the Syrian prosperity did absolutely nothing for Judah's spiritual health. Nothing. Worrying about how their kings lived, worrying about how they succeeded, it did nothing for him. So when we find ourselves entering comparison mode over its relationships or family or money, whatever it else, I'm just telling you there's no win there. None. There's nothing to comfort you there except a God who will, at the end, sort everything out. Don't let the comparison game win and let bitterness or jealousy steal your joy and root in your heart. Instead, trust a God who is great and good and that everything will be sorted out in the end. And a great way to apply this, if you're having a hard time thinking of like, man, I'm not jealous and bitter. I don't know what he's talking about. Ask your roommate, your spouse, a friend, when do you start to act differently? When you're around certain friends from high school or is it after binging on some social media or going to visit in-laws? When do you start acting differently, making snarky comments or saying self-righteous things? or maybe boasting to seem a little more impressive than you are. Because that's right there where jealousy and bitterness is driving you instead of the security of God's goodness and greatness to you in Christ. And in Nahum's second and third chapter, they teach us that the Lord against you is certain doom. And I want to give an example of this kind of war poetry. There's so much going on. There will be tons to explain, but there's sections I want to read to you so we get a sense of what Nahum is describing. And Nahum tells them that doom is coming, and then he shows us in world word pictures. Look with me at chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 10. Nineveh is like a pool who wa whose waters run away. It's no longer functional. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, 
desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble and anguish in all loins and faces grow pale. Trusting in all those glittering things like those beach houses I looked at. They will all fade away one day and count for nothing. They cannot save us even the most precious of things. Verse 13 says this, to be a theme, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots and smoke. They took great privilege in being these charioteers who could race across the deserts and the steppes to their enemies. And the sword shall devour your young lions as they compared their young princes to. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers so it shall no longer be heard pastor named Mark Dever said, success does not hide sin from God's gaze. As much as these kings wanted to put on every wall they could carve that they were the conquerors of lion, they had nothing compared to the lion of Judah, God himself. Chapter three continues with these vivid pictures. Verse five says this, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will embarrass you. I will make nations look at your nakedness and your kingdoms at your shame. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes, that great city that sat by the Nile? With water around her, her rampart, a sea, her water, her wall? You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Makes it vivid that one day the Lord will shake the tree that seems so ripe, so full of life, and all the life will fall crushing down into the rocks and sand. That a great city they probably compared themselves to in Thebes had already fallen and that they would be next in this global scale. And God ends this prophecy on a chilling note. In verse 19, he says, the Assyrians will die to a round of applause. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The message from Nahum is comfort to God's people, but it is doom that those who do not trust the Lord will not get away with it. Those who commit evil will not get away with it. That in the end, the worldliness, all the people who praise the king for favor will both clap at his funeral. I want to continue to apply this very simply to us, Citizens Church in 2022. And I got three applications for us that are very simple. First, uh, hell makes sense. A lot of times people say, if God was good or look at Jesus, there's no way hell can be real or make any sense. But then you read a book like Nahum uh, about prophecy and wrath throughout history and things like Noah's flood and Genesis or the Red Sea opening for God's people and then closing on Pharaoh and his whole army. You start to see that God has and will judge with wrath one day. That's a clear pattern throughout the Bible. And no matter how heavy it is, it doesn't make it less true. 
Hell is an eternal extension of God's wrath. God's wrath is terrible. It is something to evoke real fear. It is something to promote both our evangelism and our thankfulness to tell everyone about the great refuge in Christ. God's wrath, though, is also never wrong. So we can trust that it only falls justly. There are no mistakes. We make mistakes in our courts. We make mistakes in life all the time. God will make no mistakes in these judgments. Therefore, we can trust it. God's wrath is a part of God's holiness that both hates sin and loves his own creation, especially humans made in his image, which leads to the second application, that we must realize our fate would be Nineveh's fate apart from Jesus. We are not better than the Assyrians. Most of us have not led a campaign of war in our life. True. But the measure of our sins isn't how great we sin, but on how great is the God whom we've offended. Yes, you probably have not led a warpath, but we have all sinned before the glory and greatness of God, as Romans 3.23 amongst the whole Bible tells us. It's not about how bad we are, but how great and good and holy of a God we've offended by our sins. We are saved because of God's grace, just as Israel just as Israel was special, not because they were great or good, but because God is great and good and made gracious promises to them. So the gracious promise of Christ is to us. Third application, the offer of refuge in God, verse 7, chapter 1, is an eternal offer. It is the very heart of our God, both to us and to everyone else. So we should tell people that there is great refuge to be found in the Lord alone. When you face wicked times and wicked places, even at the height of Assyrians' wickedness, still God is proclaimed as a refuge, a refuge to all who would come to him. Because the wrath of God is due for our sins, yet the doom we deserve fell on Jesus. Look with me at Romans 5. It says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, made right before God by his blood. That's what justified means, that you're made right before God by Jesus' blood, not our blood, not our effort. Much more shall we be saved from him, saved by him from the wrath of God. On the cross, the wrath of God was poured out for sinners on a sinless Jesus. That is how the refuge is made possible. That is how hope is found. Redemption is found. And you can draw near to a God who is holy, perfect, and good. To be justified is to be made right with God. We are sinners like Nineveh, the Assyrians, but because of Jesus, we can be right with God. You can be saved from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. So God's wrath is a warning to flee from sin and a comfort that evil will not win. That we can rejoice that evil will not get the last word in the grand story of earth or in your life if you have found refuge in Christ. Jesus takes the wrath due for our sin, a refuge for the repentant. Church, Jesus is always a refuge for all who repent 
regardless of what felony has been committed, regardless if you have done a war path. Jesus is for those who turn to him and seek his help in goodness. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 